KRCL, Salt Lake City. Support for Radioactive on KRCL comes from our sustaining members and Mark Miller Subaru. Homegrown's alright with me. Homegrown is the way it should be. Homegrown is a good thing. Plant that bell and let it ring. Ah, homegrown. It's Punk Rock Farmer Friday here on Radioactive, a show for grassroots activists, community builders, punk rock farmers, and DIY creatives. I'm Laura Jones. Aldine has a night off. He's out in the desert playing some music. We can expect him back in time for 909 Day, folks. In the meantime, coming up on the show, Al did send in some on-the-road clips from Borsky Farms in Kaysville. Plus, we were at the farmer's market last week and had a couple of farmer interviews. We'll share those with you this hour. Also coming up, Gavin Dahl, our new executive director here at Listeners Community Radio of Utah. He's an old news pro, and I wanted to share some of his chops with you. Last month at a special event at the Ute Indian Museum in Montrose, Colorado, he spoke with Mary Mentz and Regina Lopez-Whiteskunk about the youth, Ute Ethnobotany and Land Stewardship. Also coming up, the 46th Annual Greek Festival at Holy Trinity in downtown Salt Lake City. We spoke with Festival Chairman George Karhelios, and we're going to have fellow Greek John Saltis from City Weekly in to talk Best of Utah, plus some Skywatcher Leo T, some Zizus to round out the show. They're going to be our featured band at 909 Day. But first, we're going to start off with some fresh and homegrown music from our friends in No Shooting Friends, Joseph. Hey, this is Dallin from No Shooting Friends, Joseph. We're stoked that you're listening to our music on KRCL. We just released a new EP. It's called The Anchor, and it's available on all streaming platforms. Check it out. This one is Look Up on KRCL 90.9.
It's Many Cultures, One Sky. Skywatcher Leo T. here. We're excited for the big moment of NASA's Artemis One mission. It's set to launch at 6.33 Mountain Time with a launch window of two hours, depending on weather or last-minute calibrations. That's not unusual at all. This is the first mission of NASA's Artemis program of lunar exploration. We can watch it on NASA TV when the time comes, so get up a little bit early. The debut of NASA's Space Launch System, or we used to call them rockets, sending an uncrewed Orion capsule to lunar orbit. Orion will spend six weeks in space, finally returning to Earth in an ocean splashdown October 10th. Sensors inside Orion will gather data on the deep space radiation environment and other aspects of the flight. And not long after liftoff, ten tiny CubeSats will deploy from an adapter connecting Orion to the rocket's upper stage. These little spacecraft will perform a variety of work, from hunting for water on the moon to traveling to a near-Earth asteroid using a solar sail. Wow, I want to find out about that. But the main goal of Artemis 1 is a test flight of the rocket and Orion that are ready to launch and carry astronauts if the Artemis 1 mission goes well. NASA aims to launch Artemis 2, a crewed mission to lunar orbit in 2024. Artemis 3 will put the astronauts down to the moon's south pole. They're going to land there in 2025 or 2026. It'll be the first crewed lunar landing since Apollo 17 moon mission in 1972. That's 50 years. And in deep space exploration, let's take the little Skywatcher spaceship out to join the Voyagers. It might take a minute to get there. NASA's Voyager probes to interstellar space. They're champions of cosmic exploration. It's the 45th anniversary of the Voyager missions to the outer planets and now into interstellar space. They've traveled farther than any other spacecraft and are still going. They'll probably reach the Oort cloud in about 300 years, transmitting on a power pack the size of a refrigerator motor and a gold disc of the rhythm of blues and music of the earth from all countries and a map of where we are, just in case they make first contact. NASA and JPL launched Voyager 2 on August 20th, 1977, and Voyager 1 mission followed a few weeks later on September 5th. They sailed out, took a tour of the outer planets, including Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, and finally out to Pluto. You can see some stunning photos. They've been there, they're still around, and they're on the Skywatcher Leo T site. These two spacecraft also captured stunning close-ups of some of the other stuff out there, and Voyager 1 took the picture of the famous pale blue dot image of Earth as seen from a distance of 3.7 billion miles from the sun. And as we look up and look around, we can look at where Voyager went and is going. For months, most of the naked eye planets have been hanging around in very fun configurations up in the morning sky, out in the early. Now Saturn comes up in the southeast as twilight fades. Next in the parade is larger Jupiter. Late these nights, Saturn and Jupiter are at their very biggest. Vega passes the zenith, or the top of the sky, and the Milky Way displays itself in moonless dark. Once you find Saturn, which is easy with your own two eyes, you, you can't miss it if you're looking over there. Yeah, and it helps if you're in the dark, somewhere like Moon Lake or above the floodwaters of Moab. Lots of good luck to you people in Moab, by the way. From the Red Rock and Juniper, you can look for the Sagittarius Teapot. It's at its highest on the meridian, due south, right after nightfall is complete. It's tilting to port of the right. See the chart on the Skywatcher site. On dark nights, the Sagittarius star cloud seems to emerge like steam from the spout of the Sagittarius teapot. And in the steam, or stream I like to call it, above these and slightly to the left is the center of the galaxy. Just try and grasp the idea. I'm, I'm still trying. Above this is the Lagoon Nebula and the small Sagittarius cloud and the Swan Nebula. For your pleasure. Now this from Star Lab, Inuit Star Lore Cylinder and Ole Knudsen. It's many cultures, one sky. Let's take a trip around the globe and northeast to the mysterious giant Greenland, where it is a challenge to survive, but Inuit have done it for a long time. To this culture, the Milky Way is known as Avaguti. Some call it a divider, Avaguti, 
either just dividing the sky or acting as a separation between the winds, so that if an easterly wind prevails, the Milky Way is blown a bit toward the west. The idea may have come from the fact that in most parts of the Arctic, the Milky Way is sometimes difficult to see because of the, the spectacular aurora, moonlight, or a haze of ice crystals in the air. At various times of the night, the Milky Way band of light spans the sky in different directions because of the location, and thus one can easily imagine that this has to do with changing wind directions. Also in Greenland, the Milky Way is interpreted in a slightly different way, a pragmatic way, by Quilapsilia. They see it as the middle line on the belly of an animal where it is cut up. Some North American Inuit use the terms the river or the snowshoe tracks of the raven, and this may be influenced by the sky lore of Native American further south. So enjoy the mystery and look up, look around, and get lost in space. Skywatcher Leo T. Thank you, Skywatcher. And check tonight's show notes for a link to his Facebook page and all the posts he does. <laughs> Had a lot of fun with him out in Twill at Stansbury Park Observatory a couple weeks back. And if you have any questions about how to go out there and uh, take advantage of that resource in our community, you're going to want to ask Leo. I'm Laura Jones. It's Radioactive. And joining me now in our Rallies and Resources segment, we've got John Saltis, founder of City Weekly, in the studio with us. City Weekly, Utah's independent newspaper since 1984, right? Right, John? 1984, and you were not even born yet, Laura. <laughs> I was just out of high school, oh, John. Wow. Well, I met you right after that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Playing music around town, and The Private Eye was the newspaper that became the City Weekly, and it clued everybody in on what was going on you know, at adult places. We were the internet of the 90s. Yes, exactly. Well, you've got the Best of Utah up, and Best of Utah started when for City Weekly? 1990 was our first one, and uh, it was a staple. It's not my idea per se to bring it, but we're the first one that did it like this in Utah. Yeah. And uh, alternative newspapers had done Best Ofs in other cities. So we did our first one on a whim. Let's try it, see what happens, put a ballot in the paper. And it worked. Yeah. Right? So we got like four or 500 responses back via mail. It was, it was all crowdsourcing, right? Yeah. Basically <laughs> yeah, crowdsourcing yeah, the best cool places around. It, it was. And, and people liked it and responded well. We knew it would because we already had an established readership by then. Yeah. You know, people liked us. And, they, you know, we were looking at City Weekly. Well, Private Eye back then, of course. But uh, – where can I go? What should I do? What should I eat? What, who's the cool best bars, performer? Best burgers, best, best bar, bands. Everything. So we had like a, maybe 100 questions on the ballot. I don't know. But we got about four or 500 back in the mail. Then we had to count them, which was like, we didn't anticipate that part. <laughs> And so now it's all digital. It's online. We'll put a link yeah. in the show notes. Voting open until I think September 15th. I think it's the 19th, but anyway, 19th? it's another it's open month. Until we got mid-September. A, yeah, we got a mid-September <laughs> deadline of uh, voting, and so you can vote right now at uh, uh, cityweekly.net/slash Best of Utah. And uh, the ballot this year is our biggest ever. We decided to try to move a little bit different direction. Yeah. And so there's like 378 or something like that different categories. Wow. Yeah, and so like we broke out dining and into an ex- very expensive food and drink and dining, nightlife, uh, restaurants. Dishes. Dishes, yeah, all the different plates. So you're going to see not just taco, but uh, taco al pastor, birria tacos, and different things like that, all broken down instead of one generic big old lump of like tacos or burgers or anything like that. I see this is the place, drinks, outdoors and rec, media and politics. Shout out KRCO. Yes, of course. And <laughs> when, you know, when you walk into KRCO off a, a building over here, 
ground zero, you just see the wall of fame. It's all best of Utah stuff. <laughs> there's all the plaques over there at Lars 1 over the year and the staffs here and everything. So oh, yeah. Fabulous. I mean, the, the interrelationship between KRCL and City Weekly, Private Eye in those days, has never changed, never wavered. Yeah. We support each other and we support the people who... Who listen to you? And I've been watching, uh, well, maybe doing a bit of too much doom scrolling, especially when it comes to presidential politics and the bemoaning of the lack of local news. What's your take on the local news situation? Hmm. Well, you know, I don't want to be nasty, but I'm not real happy about local news. Uh, look, we, we're the small guy here. We've always been that, and people regard us as the third wheel or something compared to Desert News and Tribune. There was a time when we were pretty equivalent in their circulation. Mm-hmm. Online, they kill most other journals around here. They're pretty big, right? Yeah. Especially Desert News. I mean, mm-hmm. they've got a worldwide audience. But I don't think the reporting has been any different or any better than it was before. I think even sometimes I, I look at the homepage of the Tribune, and I see a lot of stuff that I wouldn't have seen on the front page or the homepage of a daily newspaper anywhere in America. Yeah. 10 or 15 years ago. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not really going to be thrilled about local news. I mean, it's the def- definitive local news to know where the best popsicle is or, hey, n- tasty new ice cream store opens in Sugar House. Well, yeah. you know, I don't really don't want to see it on the front page of a newspaper yeah. or an online newspaper. That's just me. But uh, that doesn't that doesn't spell doom or gloom. It just says it's different, and I'm not a huge fan. Well, I'm looking at the front digital page of the City Weekly, and you've got Ticket to Ride about free transit for the Salt Lake City School District. You've also got a take on the Tribune. Folks are going to have to go read that for themselves. But this Best of Utah, what I really love about it is it becomes the guide to the community and locally owned businesses um, and where I want to spend my dollars. So I really see the value in the Best of Utah as creating community in its own way. Our whole thing. Or oeuvre, oeuvre? <laughs> what's the word? I've got a little bit of hoarseness. But uh, it's always been community. We've always been interlocked with the people who are at the street level, always. Yeah. Now, from yeah. the start, you know that, Laura. When we talk about our first best of, for example, 1990, it was myself and J.R. Rupa working side by side. Old J.R., yeah. And if people are aware today, J.R. Rupa was the founder of Slug. And he and I and Slug had a very good relationship way back when, and, and it was he's still about your, it, right? made out of your office. Right, so he and I would never seen a paper that big. It was 36 pages. Yeah. He, he was the art guy, and we were basically up for three days trying to put it together. Well, guy, I remember. A guy named Brett Elsie did the cover. Uh, you know, he was, he was a good guy, and it took people like that to help it grow. That could just Everybody just came together, right? And so today now it's what it is, and it's grown, and it's impactful in the community. Today I looked at uh, the statistics just a little while ago. The ballot's been live for not quite a week, or maybe because we got a new system. If you went to it, you'd see a whole kind of easier system to vote and everything. There have been almost 5,000 votes cast. Already? With no promotion. Uh And... uh, 75,000 different places voted for. Not different places, different votes cast. Okay. So, and, and thousands of categories, you know. So it, It's going to be that, huge. Well, it's going to be, yeah, you try doing that by hand. Yeah. <laughs> you know. So then the results, when do we get those? Uh, the issue always prints November, and we, it, it, I shouldn't say always, but in recent, recent history, November. It's going to mm-hmm. come out on November 17th, I believe. 
one week before Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. Then one week after that, December 1st, is our Best of Utah party, which Laura can say with definitiveness is? (laughs) Is the the best. (laughs) Of the year. Uh (laughs) Uh, Kind of widely known that it is. It's a huge party, tons of samples, tons of bites, tons of folks, tons of fun stuff to do. Right. So we'll be having you back to uh, make sure everyone knows Best of Utah. It's time to get your votes in. What's the website again? Uh, cityweekly.net mm-hmm. backslash and best of Utah. Great. We'll put the link in the show notes. Now, remind me how to toast in Greek because we're going to do a sneak peek of the Greek uh, festival which now. Which way? I know, right? What was the one we used during quarantine? Yamas. Yamas. No. Yamas. 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 I got to go to Greece with you one of these times. Isigin is another one. Isigin. To your health. I like, like that hygiene, one a lot. Right? Isigin. Yeah. Yamas. Isigin. John Salta, City Weekly founder. Founder. Thank you so much for it's coming. It's been a long in. time. It's been a fun road, Laura. Great to know you all these many years, and I just really, really do appreciate you and Carcio all the way. Right back at you. Okay. All right, here is our sneak peek of the Greek Festival with Festival Chairman George Karahelios. Again, how many years has the festival been going on, George? <laughs> this is the 46th. 46th, 46th year. All down in, next to Holy Trinity, which has been undergoing some changes with construction, but the festival moving ahead starting September 9th. Yes. Um, we were a little worried about the road construction, but you know what? They promised us they'd be done, and they are finished. So it's all going to be uh, wide open. We are going to close the street off again, so you can have street parking. We do have a giant parking lot now behind the cathedral where it's going to have probably about 600 stalls, so uh, festival goers can park in there. Wonderful. So, so, so many decades as a festival, but the Greek community goes back how long here in Utah? Oh, geez, turn of the century. Um, the first church was built in like 1905, uh, over there on 4th South between 4th and 5th West. That was the first church. And then they saved enough money to buy the property up there where the cathedral stands right now on 3rd South and 3rd West. And in 1925, erected the uh, Holy Trinity Cathedral. Yeah. Beautiful cathedral. Yes. Important part of our architectural history. But in terms of immigrant community, why did uh, Greeks come to Utah? Anything unique that you'd like to point out? Well, mainly mining. Uh, It was a big, uh, you know, uh, at the time, of course, back in the turn of the century, there are a lot of poverty and so on and so forth in Greece. So there was opportunity here for them. Um, A lot of them came. Most of them were single men. Uh, a lot of them wrote back for wives, you know, <laughs> you know the uh, male male bride type uh, thing that was going on then. But uh, it was really interesting that the majority of them ended up uh, going back, getting married, and then coming back here, um, settling down. Uh, Salt Lake City uh, being a huge, uh, where the Bingham, of course, Bingham Mine was uh, mm-hmm. uh, out in Bingham, and that's where they lived. But there was a Greek town not too far away from here where the station is, actually. Uh, over there on about uh, 4th West and I think 1st, 2nd North, something like that. Um, and so it was just like any other town, the Italian town, uh, Japan town. There was Greek town, and that's where they lived. They congregated. They had um, cafes. They had stores, uh, you know, all to their own little all little liking. What do you think the legacy is from them to you? Uh, hard work and perseverance pays off. <laughs> How's that? And then throw a good party. And then throw a good party. So what <laughs> did you. people look forward to at the Greek uh, Festival this year? Well, one thing that we all always like to feature is our culture and heritage. That is our Hellenism. What are we really about? 
uh, we have uh, dance performances by one of our nationally recognized dance groups, the Dionysius Dance Group, all the way down to the little ones that are, you know, five, six, seven years old. Uh, but we also, you know, it, there's the cathedral tours. We have our museum, beautiful museum. Uh, they'll be touring um, also the entire time of the festival. This year we have a, a nice, beautiful lecture by one of a professor, Aliki uh, Dracos is her name, and she is a professor at UVU, teaches ancient architectural history. And it how it, how it coincides with modern-day architecture and why, uh, well, most of our buildings are built because of the Greek columns and uh, the architecture that was from the from ancient times when they used to build the Parthenon and, and those buildings back then. So she'll be doing a lecture Friday at 6 p.m. about that, and they'll have a little booth that you know people can come and learn a little bit more about that. Um, but, of course, we also, not only the partying, but we also have the food. Yes, you know, you got to come hungry yes. to the Greek festival, and folks are already cooking, I'm guessing, some of the desserts and things. They are just about finished. Um, I think this will be the last weekend that we'll be cooking. We have we started cooking a while ago, uh, back in June. Um, the talking stuff, about the baklava and things like that. Well, the baklava is uh, more of a recent thing. Yeah. But we're, a lot of the food we cook and then we freeze it, yeah. of course, and then bring it out. And then the pastries, of course, they get frozen as well, some of them, but not all of them because you don't really want to freeze some of those. Yeah. Baklava has got to be relatively fresh. The galactoburico has got to be relatively fresh. I mean, things like that. But So those are made late, uh, like this weekend. And then <laughs> so, you have a bunch of grills because you're doing a lot of the, the meat right there on site. Right. What can people... What can folks look forward to? Maybe assemble a dish for us as you're going down the line in your mind. Well, we have 16, 17 entrees of food. Mm -hmm. uh, that doesn't include the pastries, which is another 15 items uh, that, that are there. But uh, if you really, really love Greek food, of course, the gyro is number one. Uh, I mean, the gyro has been something that's been around for years, for centuries, centuries, centuries. Uh, how Greeks, a uh, little history on the gyro. Uh, Greek soldiers used to put meat inside their bread roll it up, and that's how they would go out and fight. And that's really what they had to eat back in the ancient times when they used to fight and so on and so forth. Not fight, but, you know, go out into the, the battlefield or wherever they were stationed or something like that, and that was their food. Um, so that was the gyro. And then they started putting sauces and spices and things like that, of course, and, you know, that all came from the Greek, ancient Greeks. So that was wonderful. So that's where the gyro comes from. And then, of course, we have the souvlaki, which are the, uh, well, the shish kebabs. The skewers. Yes, the skewers with the chicken and the pork. Um, so that's always I'm nice. drooling as you yes. talk about this. Well, as we go <laughs> as you go down the line, you know we have the 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 rice, the pilafi, mm -hmm. which is uh, always delicious. Uh, we have the stifada, which is the uh, the beef stew, mm. uh, one of my favorites. That is really really good, and this year it's exceptional. Um, I had a chance to taste it <laughs> because we had it we had it for a little lunch, and I said, okay, this will work. This will, we'll, we'll get away with this one. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. But then you know, there's the spanakopites and the tiropites, those are the cheese and the spinach pies. And then as you keep going down, there's the ro the the uh, roasted chicken. Um, and then and then of course you know you have um, uh, the baked bean or not baked beans but I guess they're the cooked beans. Mm -hmm. uh, those are uh, those are some of that. And then of course a Greek salad. So if you want um, like a full meal, yeah, you'd want to get those for sure. And you want to come hungry. You definitely want to come hungry. Well, where can people learn more and plan their visit to this year's Greek festival? Uh, Salt Lake. Uh, let's see, SaltLakeGreekFestival.com is our website. Um, it will be up in full force so with all our sponsors and everything uh, probably in about three, four days. 
Um, so that should be good to go. Um, it, admission is $3. Uh, we don't sell them online. We don't do anything like that. We just have people come. Now, we are doing something very special this year. If you are a student with a valid ID, you can come in for free. If you go to the U of U football game on Saturday and you show your ticket stub on Saturday and Saturday only, your, your admission will be free. Mm, sounds like you got a team. Yes, we do. <laughs> well, it was interesting because they're actually going to announce it at the game. So we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. You might be flooded. Then. Yeah, we might be flooded with people around three o'clock in the afternoon, which we normally are, but this will be great. Well, in closing, maybe you can share a, a family story about your, your Greek heritage. What is it you think people should know about today's Greek community? Well, today's Greek community, Greeks are very entrepreneurial people and very hospitable people. So if you come to the Greek festival, you will see, well, really more our, our philoxenia, which means our hospitality, our love for people. And we love congregating together and having a big party, like you said earlier. That's what we do best. We're Greek, right? <laughs> and, and But uh, uh, some of the hardship stories are uh, stories like uh, the immigrants that came over. Um, I can give you a quick little rundown on my uncle who came over when he was 17 years old. $3 in his pocket, gets off on Ellis Island in New York thinking he's in McGill, Nevada. Didn't have a dime to get out to McGill, Nevada because uh, his cousins lived in McGill, Nevada. They didn't know he was coming, but he wanted to get to McGill, Nevada uh, because he was going to go work in the mines. That's what he was going to do. So he spent eight months in New York working in a restaurant. Uh, he just happened to make his way there. He didn't really know English very well at all, but he ma made his way around, which is what most of the Greeks did back in the back in the early you know early fifties and forties and fifties and so on and so forth. So he uh, he was able to make his way to Detroit, where he met up with some relatives there, and then finally, a year and a half later, made it to McGill, Nevada, where he started working in the mines there. Wow. So, yeah. That's some persistence. Oh, yeah. I mean, and that's the majority of the Greeks back then. That's yeah. what they did, uh, you know. Uh, but then uh, my generation went to school. That's what we had to do. Yeah. <laughs> we just had to do it. So. And now you lead the annual Greek festival. <laughs> Which, and I've enjoyed it. It's my second year leading it. And I got to tell you, last year was phenomenal. Uh, probably the largest crowd we've ever had. Uh, this year we're expecting it bigger. Uh, so we've prepared for that. Uh, we've got everything set, the tents up. Uh, we do have some additional, like I said, additional parking for people because I know it's hard to park down there, but we we actually did a little bit of construction and made a, a gigantic parking lot behind our building, and therefore our volunteers and guests can park there. There will be a fee. I'm not sure what the price is right now, but there will be a fee for non-participants, uh, yeah. Well, best of luck. Is there a, a Greek, in Greek salutation I should be learning in, in advance? Well, there a generic term would be yasu. Yasu yes. is hello, goodbye, yasu. Kalosorisate, um, which means welcome. Kalosorisate? Perfect. Look at that. You, <laughs> so you will be Greek for a weekend. There's no I question. It. I got I, it. I encourage everybody to come down and be Greek for a weekend. <laughs> we would love it. Save the date. KRCL's 909-day block party and record sale is coming up on September 9th, and we'd love to see you there. We recently moved our studios into the thriving and diverse Guadalupe neighborhood, and we're inviting you to come down and check out our new space. Plus, get to know some of our new neighbors and do some record digging as we welcome back the annual KRCL record sale. The 909-day block party and record sale, Friday, September 9th, 4 to 8 p.m. at KRCL.
Details at krcl.org. John Borski, Borski Farms up in Kaysville. John Borski, what's fresh right now? God, we finally got the heirloom tomatoes coming on. My heirloom eggplant looked great. I've got purple potatoes and Yukon golds. Summer squash are looking good. Uh, you know, the tomato crop is, there's kind of a shortage in tomatoes this year. Not a very great supply. So if you come down to the farmer's market, get down there early <laughs> to get the fresh pick or you're not gonna get any. And, and I've seen a few peaches also. Not a lot. But there's some. A few. You got to get there early. A few. You got to get there earlier. You'll be getting the seconds in the scraps. The seconds in the scraps. Hmm. That sounds okay to me. Yeah. So you know what you're doing. So John Porsky, tell me just, just tell me a little bit about the old days when organics first started in Salt Lake City in our area. You kind of rode that wave, didn't you? Well, I. You know, I started doing it, then I realized there were a few people in the state that kind of don't take the message of organic quite right, and they kind of think you're a hippie or a rebel or something like that, <laughs> or you might be growing pot in your backyard or something like that. And I really had to figure it out and find the people who were serious about what they eat. They were set in their ways. They were set in their ways in those days, weren't they? They were, but the people who do want organic were waiting for it to come into town. And, you know, Renui Gardens, Steve up there and I were the first two people that were certified here. And he kind of got over the state and the attitude towards uh, organic farming, which was worse in the early days. It's better now. And we get a big crowd down at the market there in Salt Lake, and they're looking for it now. We sell out early every week. So it was a tough run at the beginning. Yeah, it was. I kind of had to figure the state out because I moved here just thinking, you know, everybody would be into it. It was kind of uh, trendy, and, <laughs> you know, people were getting uh, more into it after just discovering all of the stuff that Monsanto and these big chemical companies and all the bullshit that was going on through them and what you know people were dealing with uh heirloom seeds hybrids had taken over but the heirlooms are back on the market now and we're able to grow and save a lot of our own seed where those big seed companies and chemical companies were trying to make it almost impossible to do because they wanted everyone to be buying seed from them instead of saving their own seeds very important stuff save your own seed grow your own and it bolsters our food sovereignty right here in our area it really does and i actually talked to a guy from a news station <clears throat> a couple of weeks ago and he was going around he was talking to people at local farm stands and the next generation there aren't going to be very many of them there because the people who are doing it now are kind of the last, last of a few farmers that have been around for a long time and a lot of their kids don't want to do it. Uh, in my case, I didn't have any kids, so there's not going to be anyone to take it over. And hopefully, you know, there will be a few young people that get interested and uh, have the energy to do it. It's a lot of work. Very important to start the new wave and keep things going. Absolutely. 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 We got to get 
a few of those young people interested in it and just realize that it is cool, you know, being a farmer isn't fuddy-duddy and all that, you know, we're, we're, uh, it's a cool thing to do. John, and I think the future of it is going to, it's going to be more important to do that than ever, or we're not going to have local farm stands on the side of the road. And that's where the best food is, boy, I sure hope people are catching on, and I know the farmer's market, there's a lot of people there, and I just hope we can all spread the word and keep things going and ha keep this agricultural revolution snowballing. God, that's great, man. You're on our side. I'm here. <laughs> Thanks, John Borsky, Borsky Farms. He's at the downtown farmer's market every Saturday. And, uh, and I go got my farm stand here in Kaysville, too. Farm stand in Kaysville, right over here right on, on Main, Main Street. Street. Yeah. Yep, over by Big Old Tires. Yep, and we're going full steam ahead now. Very good. Here we go. Thanks, John. Al Dynstrick and KRCL's punk rock farmer on the road at Borsky Farms in Kaysville. I'm Laura Jones. This is Radioactive. And next up on the show, KRCL's new executive director, Gavin Dahl, just moved here from Western Colorado, shares two interviews from his previous station there about ute, ethnobotany, and land stewardship. Mary Menz and Regina Lopez-White Skunk led a special event last month at the Ute Indian Museum in Montrose, presented by History Colorado. Here's Gavin. My first guest is Regina Lopez-Whiteskunk, Cross-Cultural Programs Manager at the Montezuma Land Conservancy. She was born and raised in southwestern Colorado and resides on the Ute Mountain Ute Reservation. Regina is a member of the Ute Mountain Ute Tribe of Toyok. After a decade in the information technology field, she changed beats. She served as an elected official in the Tribal Council and has been working on environmental and cultural issues, including as a sought-after public speaker. In case that doesn't make her sound busy enough, she's also candidate for a master's in environmental management with Western Colorado University. Thanks for speaking with KVNF, Regina. Thank you for having me. Non-natives are taught Ute camps were traditionally located near water sources. Can you just start by talking about how Ute ancestors used the area along the Uncompahgre River? Yes, my Ute ancestors utilized this area primarily during the winter times. Um, we we wintered low and we summered high, and so um, definitely it's it's very necessary to have a a water source throughout the seasons and. Um, we pretty much identified locations that were healthy and had adequate sources of, of water and vegetation and other other resources um, needed to, to live life. How much did elevation play a role in the seasonal rounds made by the people before colonization? Well, the higher elevations, as, as many of you all know, um, the youth have trails that are, are very high atop of um, mountains and and in and around high peaks, um, we utilized those so that we wouldn't disturb um, the the tender plants and herbs um, to create disturbances within the waterways. Um, but we were very conscious about what was in and around our environment and how much we wanted to impact. Um, that was really a large part of. Uh, why grandmothers would be the first people that would be out into campsites and, and being observant of, of the whole surrounding and, and really just gauging the area for what they could harvest and utilize. A little lighter on their feet, perhaps. Yes, exactly. <laughs> 
I mean, we grew up with with guiding principles like um, leave things better than you found it and, you know, leave the places of encampment as though you were never there when you break camp. So these are very much elements of being lighter on the foot. Our modern-day understanding of time over the course of the year is based on the Julian calendar, you know, three cycles of 365-day years followed by a 366-day leap year. Is the Ute ceremonial calendar based more on the four seasons? Can you kind of illuminate us on that? Yes, yes, yes. We we move according to seasons. So, you know, the springtime being for us is our new year, and that's the time that we can um, reconnect with one another. And we it's a time to celebrate coming out of, you know, the winter time when a lot of people and, and families would um, have their encampments and locations and places near waters and and in areas where maybe had a nice windbreak where not as much of the colder elements would um, impact their their daily lives, but also in locations where they may have harvested and stored a lot of their food that they've collected throughout the year. Um, So it it was absolutely important. It's also very important to know um, the lay of the land and knowing where you had stored these um, these supplies for the the colder seasons, um, so we we moved according to where and how we could live the best life during these different seasons. So, like right about now, we would be probably, if not already located in the higher elevations, we would be on our way to those higher elevations. In reading more about the Ute Indian Museum's Ethnobotany Garden, there's an acronym that came up that I didn't know and I would bet many of our listeners might not know about, TEK, or Traditional Ecological Knowledge. Can you explain, please? Well, we all see ourselves as a part of a system. Um, and, And I think that, you know, through all the experience that I've had over the past several years, We as humans have taken ourselves out of those ecological systems without knowing that we have truly impacted them, either positively or negatively, but we take ourselves out of that. Within our traditional knowledge, we acknowledge the fact that our Mother Earth, our water systems, the air, everything is a part of that bigger system, but it's also one needs the other, very, very connected. And so I think that for us, it's, it's really utilizing and, and acknowledging the, the knowledge of our ancestors and their, their living experiences. And that's how we would like to be able to pattern our daily lives after. And in terms of oral teachings, is that something that the tribes are able to continue at this point? I mean, it feels like we hear about indigenous languages being under threat all over the world. Right. So oral teachings for us, especially for youth, um, is absolutely important. That's the only means, because we don't have a written form of language. We don't have it um, recorded in any other place except for passing it from one generation to the next that has posed a huge threat in our youth communities and reservations 
as we start to see the older generations leaving this life. And, and unfortunately, that's a resource. Those are um, schools of knowledge and experiences aren't being relayed in the same fashion that have been um, for many, many generations. And so we're trying to figure out and wade through how do we pass on the oral teachings and tradition in this current modern era of technology um, and life. My first guest on the show this week is Regina Lopez-Whiteskunk, Cross-Cultural Programs Manager at the Montezuma Land Conservancy and a member of the Ute Mountain Ute Tribe of Toyok. Regina, the museum is situated on acreage that was once part of Chief Ure's homestead, and its grounds include the crypt of his wife, Chipita, and a monument to the chief. I imagine it feels special to be part of ongoing education events at the Ute Indian Museum. It is, it's truly a special time for me to, to revisit. As a former employee of the Ute Indian Museum, I have come to recognize and feel that the Montrose area and the mountain side from, you know, coming down through Ridgeway off of, off of the Dulles Divide, that's, that's home to me. And so I feel reconnected. I feel like I've been reintroduced. And so it, it's absolutely an honor to be able to move just as my ancestors did and to be on ground that, you know, um, didn't mean something to somebody. Um, but it, I'll be really honest, it is a little eerie to have the the mausoleum and the remains said to be still located there um, because as, as you people, it's our culture to allow for that to rest, to allow people to rest. And as they pass, that's the respect that we, we give them. So it, it's a little unsettling, but um, I think many of us have kind of come to terms with it and we, we understand in the society and world we live in, um, that's just something that uh, people do. So we've accepted that and, and moved past it. Really interesting. In terms of ethnobotany, can you talk about connections certain plants have to Ute spirituality? Absolutely. So as youth, we see ourselves a part of the bigger system. We see ourselves as a part of a family. So, you know, our Mother Earth, Father Sky, um, you know, these things all have important roles in our lives. We're in a, in a very, very deep relationship with all that's around us, and we honor those presents. Um, we look upon the mountains as, as our grandfathers. So everything has a spirit. Everything has a, a, a sense of being. And they have a place in all of our lives. And so as we move along and we're able to, to help one another, to help support um, whatever the existence is, you know, we, we need the plants just as much as the plants need us. And so to have these special places in our culture, for example, peppermint that grows near water, we utilize that at special times. Um, during our ceremonies of Sundance, we also utilize sage um, for a variety of different um, cultural and ceremonial uses. Cedar is absolutely important. Um, even the use of cattails, these all play roles during and within our ceremonial realm, but they're also very useful 
items in our everyday lives. And um, when the people were moving out, they were very, very necessary for everyday life. Mm -hmm. Um, And we still hold these plants and our relationship to these plants in a very sacred space. And, you know, when we are out harvesting, we don't over-harvest. We always were raised with the guiding principle of you only take what you need because you always be mindful of all that that will follow you thereafter, whether it's another animal, another human being, or whether that plant needs to reseed and and grow and flourish. Whatever that is, you're mindful that you need to leave some behind and not to over-harvest. So we innately, we, we have an unwritten management plan, plan for, for plant life that, that we utilize in these sacred manners. Um, but when we do, we also, it's, it's also accompanied with the thought that we share gratitude and we speak directly to them in that we say thank you and we share a drink of water or we share an offering of some tobacco and we accompany that with a prayer. And we say, thank you. I will see you on another day, whether that's next year or five years, um, whatever that may be. There's a little personal ceremony that accompanies the harvesting of of plants that are held in special places. Yeah, it seems like that's one of the big lessons today's society can learn from history is ensuring wildlife, including both flora and fauna, like you said, can live and reproduce for the future. Is it historically accurate to say the Ute people did not deplete natural resources, even if the concept of conservation was, you know, in its infancy, you could say, um, and has evolved over generations? Absolutely. Um, and it's just in, encompassed in, in the principle that I just shared. Mm-hmm. We never over-harvest. And to share gratitude and say thank you to a higher power for the existence of that, I think, is, is one of the the many things that kind of have fallen by our wayside. But the world, I'm sure we're not the only Indigenous people who um, are involved with this type of activity. I'm sure there's others who continue to speak of being able to show gratitude for all that you're able to partake of. And, of course, for you working in land conservancy work and on environmental and cultural issues, it seems like you're, in many ways, carrying on those traditions. Absolutely, and being able to um, braid my my traditional and cultural knowledge with science and with um, the ability to help educate others beyond my Indigenous people to cultivate relationships between humans and, and Indigenous people learning together and understanding that we're only going to get past a lot of these climate challenges and everyday challenges together. Is there anything else you'd like to add for folks who can't attend on some Sunday or if someone out there is interested in learning more? Yes. Um, support upcoming projects, programs. Um, feel free to reach out to any of the um, organizations that we all work with um, and continue to be mindful of your footsteps, and all that you partake of in this world and life. That's Regina Lopez-Whiteskunk, member of the Ute Mountain Ute Tribe of Toyok, 
cross-cultural programs manager at the Montezuma Land Conservancy and speaker at the Ute Ethnobotany and Land Stewardship event. Thank you so much for taking time. Absolutely. You all have a great day. My next guest is Mary Menz, writer and Colorado native plant master who teaches for CSU Extension on the Western Slope. She's the author of Common Wildflowers of the San Juan Mountains, and she's a longtime volunteer at the Ute Indian Museum in Montrose. Thanks, Mary. Thank you. In a great piece on the History Colorado website that we'll link to when we post this interview, you write the Utes were sophisticated naturalists who followed game and blooming plants from lower elevations to higher elevations to take advantage of each season's bounty. The Ethnobotany Garden at the Ute Museum in Montrose seems like a fitting tribute. Can you start by taking us back in time to how this whole project came together? Well, back in um, 2017, there were a group of a small group of volunteers at the Ute Indian Museum. And we had this fabulous garden across the street that's on the property, and it was full of non-native plants. And we thought, wow, wouldn't it be great if we could have native plants that the Utes actually used in the garden? So that was the beginning of our um, uh, task, if you will, to completely rehab the garden, um, a garden that had been put together in the 1990s. And what kinds of foliage were on display in the garden on the museum grounds over its, you know, first two decades? The first two decades, um, the garden was absolutely beautiful. It had great structure, little bridges, a pond. But we assume that back in the 90s, um, it was very difficult to source native plants in the garden trade or the nursery trade. And um, so there were Chinese willow. um, There were um, European tuberous geraniums. Um, There were lots of Shasta daisies. It was beautiful, but it was not, uh, it did not reflect the native plants that we find in Montrose County or even on the Western Slope. Um, We wanted to rip all those out. We knew that there were lots of plants that occur here on the Western Slope and specifically in Montrose County on this historic site um, that we wanted to incorporate and So we ripped everything out in one day with 40 volunteers from the community. (laughs) Wow. And uh, and was that a shock to you to show up and have that many people willing to help? It was kind of shocking to to know that that many people showed up. There were boys. There was a Boy Scout troop. Um, There were just people who saw the notice in the newspaper. And it was early in the spring. And maybe people were just you know, itching to get their hands in the dirt, but it was wonderful. And um, then we had a blank slate to start from. So how did you choose which native plants to focus on in the new iteration of what you're calling the ethnobotany garden? We actually did quite a bit of research. Um, As Regina may have um, mentioned, the um, tech program had um, lots of source material from the different tribes. Um, there had been some surveys done by members of the different tribes. Um, they had gone out and identified plants and their uses, um, you know, that they had historically used over the, the past several hundred years that was knowledge passed on by elders to Ute youth. Um, and with that kind of information and um, knowing which plants are actually native to Colorado, we kind of narrowed down our scope. Um, we wanted to have mostly plants that were used, actually used by the youth, 
when they would have their traditional um, seasonal round in the Montrose area. Perhaps they were following game along the Uncompahgre River. They would stop and camp. Um, so they would have meat. And then, of course, they would have the plants that were blooming that they could use for edible or medicinal um, or even cultural purposes. Things like ripening berries um, or plant roots. And so we we took on the challenge. <laughs> and I say it was a challenge because not a lot of native plants are available even now in the nursery trade. But we sourced plants from the Front Range, um, from Utah, from Southern Colorado, um, the Grand Junction area, and we came up with about 60 plants that are native that we could actually purchase and put into the garden. Let's list all of them. No, I'm kidding. But what kind of process <laughs> has gone into getting the garden to the point where it is now? I mean, it's not like you just got, okay, here's 60 things. We're going to stick them in the ground in one day with 40 volunteers, and then it's done. You know, I mean, there's such a such an effort to make it look so great like it does now. It was a big effort, and it didn't really look that great the first year because some of our plants were four inches tall. In fact, we put in more than 400 plants um, during a week in May of 2018. And it was it was gratifying to see all these new native plants situated in the ethnobotany garden, but it was also a little um, scary because we knew that there would be some loss over the following winter. Um, you know, plants just don't always thrive. And so it's been a, um, a, a great experience to watch things change from year to year, spring to spring. And now it's very lush. Things have taken over. Um, we're actually pulling some things out and moving them to different parts of the garden. Um, it's very gratifying to see that evolution. My guest is Mary Menz, writer and Colorado native plant master who teaches for CSU Extension on the Western Slope. She's an author and a longtime volunteer at the Ute Indian Museum in Montrose. You know, there is also curriculum in development, so students on field trips or attending summer camps can learn when they visit the garden. I mean, the Indian Museum grounds are already a place that kids love to be, but what are some ways you're able to tie these lessons to Ute tradition and culture? That's a great question. Um, because of the um, uh, education programs that we already have and the new curriculum that we've been developing, we have lots of opportunities for kids, youth, youth and also youth from um, the Western Slope and beyond, and even adults to come in and learn about different plants that are used um, and how they were used, why they were used. Um, we've had adult education programs where we um, talk about developing, and then we actually do develop a, a pine pitch salve that was used um, externally, topically, on wounds. And then we have um, curriculum for school students from kindergarten up to high school, things like uh, the pollinator relationship um, with native plants, the, um, the materials used by the Utes and their plants in cultural um, situations, such as creating cradle boards or uh, basketry. And then we also talk about um, um, herbarium samples. Um, and collecting materials for future studies. So perhaps we might have a high school group come in, um, collect or dig up a plant, mount it on herbarium paper, archival paper, um, label it, 
um, actually kind of learn the basics of field botany. Um, Things that are interesting to them that kind of bring in that whole science um, aspect. My daughter and I use our family membership to the Uteni Museum for the exhibits, but we also like to bring takeout to the grounds and just sit in a teepee and eat or, you know, think about the history of this place. For anyone who has yet to visit the museum, the boardwalk down to the Uncompahgre River is a unique aspect of the grounds. Do we know if the plants found in the riparian area along the boardwalk were used by Ute people before they were forcefully removed by the U.S. government back in the 1880s? Yes, actually, we have lots of cattails down there that occur naturally. Um, The cattails, well, they were a food source um, at different times in their growth cycle, but also during the bear dances, I believe, um, the women would gather the cattails and weave together cooling mats um, for people to sleep on. So that's one native plant that occurs down in the boardwalk area that, you know, was used traditionally and may even be still used today. And if folks are not familiar with the bear dance, there are some great videos and exhibits inside the museum to help you learn more about that. Writer, educator, and Colorado native plant master, Mary Menz, thanks so much for your commitment to this super cool project and for speaking to us on public radio. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. And that was KRCL's new executive director, Gavin Dahl, in conversation with author and native plant master Mary Menz and Ute Mountain Ute tribal member Regina Lopez-Whiteskunk about the Ute Ethnobotany Garden and History Colorado's Ute Indian Museum in Montrose, Colorado. Check tonight's show notes for a link to Mary's article, An Ethnobotany Garden Grows in Montrose. I'm Laura Jones, and that's our show. My thanks to Aldine on the road, and of course, uh, John Saltis from City Weekly, George Karahelios from the Greek Festival, and John Borski from Borski Farms. All the great folks on the show this hour. Skywatcher Leo T. Music from No Shooting Friends, Joseph. I got a gig at Funkin' Dive Bar this weekend. Have a great weekend. Thanks for listening. See you next week on Radioactive. We'll keep plugging you into your community. KRCL 90.9 FM HD1 in Salt Lake City, Ogden, and Provo. 96.7 FM in Park City on the web at krcl.org. Listener supported community radio.